First Peter Bible Study, Part 11, Exilic Conduct. For lay leaders and deacons to conduct after the Sunday service or during a midweek Bible study session. Hear the word of our Lord from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. So St. Peter has introduced his central thesis in 1 Peter 2 verses 4 through 10. I won't get into too much detail because we spent four Sunday schools going over it. But, simply put, it's the magnificent truth that Christ elevates the Christian as he himself was elevated, and non-believers remain in humiliation. Passages before that kind of allude to this, but now, especially with our reading for today, he goes from the implicit allusion, looking forward to that thesis, and now plays it out in the rest of his writings more explicitly. So if you understand that you are part of the true Israel, you're part of this new chosen race and lineage, well, in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 25, he's going to start discussing the various ways that we must act like it. Seeing this new reality as real for you. For instance, in verse 11, he says, 
Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, the Christian is part of the true Israel, and the true Israel happens to be in a position of exile. Unlike the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles, though, it's not a punishment. It's not a punitive exile. Later on in Second Peter, he will discuss these circumstances as something we must endure so that others may be saved. It is an exile for the sake of grace. If God just came back right now, how many people who would have been saved would suddenly find themselves going to hell. They're not Christians yet. <laughs> it would be horrible to see this mass of unbaptized people who would have believed if only they had heard suddenly being brought down into damnation because, well, we were so impatient, you see. So, perhaps, St. Peter's initial readers were confused. He brings all of this up saying that we must abstain from the passions of the flesh, and we must keep our conduct, verse 12, among the Gentiles, honorable. He says we should be subject to the Lord's sake, to every human institution, and these former pagans are wondering, like, okay, well, the Christian faith is more moral than the previous paganism that I was involved with, but... I have more freedom in Christ than I ever had as a slave to the devil. How can I be in exile? How, how am I in this state when things are continuing to be normal? You breathe the same air before you're a Christian that you're going to end up breathing after you become a Christian. What's the difference? Well, you see, when somebody is elevated by our Savior, they are elevated to a race, which is not at home, a nation without a homeland, and a priesthood which is not accorded the honor due to it by the world. Uh, race, nation, and a priesthood being from 1 Peter 2.9. Now, since the gospel does not destroy earthly distinctions, we can take comfort in the brotherhood of our kin, we can enjoy our homeland, we can serve in our government, and we can seek the best interest of all of these. But now there is this second set of all of these things, a second race, a second lineage, a second homeland, and a second priesthood to which we Christians belong. And that leads to this disjointed state of existence that St. Peter calls an exile. Once we were non-believers with a God-shaped hole in our hearts, now we are believers beset with longing for God's kingdom to be fully inaugurated. That kingdom of heaven is already but not yet. Christians are a nation unto themselves, but we are in exile for the sake of bringing more Christians into being. So here St. Peter starts connecting Old Testament exile to us in here, the New Testament era, with the same advice given to the Christian church that Old Testament exiles were given. For instance, Daniel and his friends 
did not satisfy their appetites with King Nebuchadnezzar's delicacies. From Daniel chapter 1, they ate vegetables instead of pork and drinking blood mixed with wine or whatever other disgusting things Babylonians ate and drank back then. They ate vegetables instead. So too do Christians abstain from defiling passions. Now, certainly we have greater freedom than Daniel had. We can eat all manner of foods now. If you want a slice of bacon, you can do that. But since Daniel and the other prophets are models and advocates for good conduct in the midst of exile, the apostle gives the same advice. Don't join in with the pagans when it comes to the sins that they do. We don't join in with the passions of the flesh and the throwing off of all constraint to get into orgies or drunkenness or fighting and struggling, etc. and so forth. That stuff is still in you, absolutely, but we struggle with it. We try to maintain self-control. So to do this honors God, despite the slander of the Gentiles, quote-unquote. Literally, the word is nations. Uh, and they will receive correction in one way or another, either when they convert or on Judgment Day. A quick note on the term Gentiles. Yes, it means nations. We need to understand, though, that that was used previously as a contrasting term. There was Israel, then there was the nations. That same dynamic that you see in the Old Testament, Israel versus the nations, the rest of the world, now that is transferred, that dichotomy is now the church in the world. St. Peter uses this language that harkens back to it to emphasize, again, that we, even though we have Gentile heritage, are still part of God's true Israel. It is no longer a matter of blood. Now on government, <laughs> I dislike having to talk about this because I have to say the same things over and over again, but that's okay. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution in verse 13, uh, to the emperor supreme or the governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. It's God's will for us to do so. The prophet Jeremiah spoke to the exiles of Judah in the same way, saying that they must seek the welfare of the Babylonians and pray for them despite the conditions the exiles were under. They were assured that God himself would restore Judah after 70 years and thus were forbidden to listen to any voice that told them to rebel or try to restore themselves. You can find that in Jeremiah chapter 29, especially starting in verse 4. St. Paul later, in the New Testament era, speaks to Christians and tells them to obey the governing authorities on the account of the nature of a ruler's vocation. What's the job of a government, of a civic ruler? Uh, punish bad stuff and reward good stuff on the civic level. Okay, St. Peter then is incorporating both messages broadly here, clarifying the matter of Christian freedom. He says, yes, as exiles who want to seek the good of whatever place we are in, we must be peaceful people, and we do this treating our rulers as though they were supposed to be 
you know, rewarding good and punishing bad, even if they don't do that perfectly. Any ruler at all is going to be a sinner, so they're going to mess up on that one. So, we are to submit to the governing authorities, whether emperor or magistrate. The apostle uses both titles here on account of historic circumstance. He wrote to congregations under Roman rule, but it clearly extends out to all forms of government in all places. All civic authority is to be obeyed unless, of course, they ask us to sin or they tell us through law or decree that we should sin or apostatize or anything of the sort. In Acts chapter 5, when the ruling synagogue and temple authorities told the apostles to quit preaching about Jesus, telling them to sin by violating the Great Commission, St. Peter says, we must obey God rather than man. What's that mean? If the government tells you to sin or tells you to stop being a Christian, you engage in civil disobedience. But there is another form of acceptable rebellion to God and that is honorable conduct. By being a good person, by loving your neighbor as yourself and loving God above all, in being a good exile, you truly are rebelling against all of our antagonists. You're not permitting false doctrine to continue. St. Peter uses this turn of phrase, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I love that. It has this context, this connotation of shutting them up. <laughs> How is that anything other than a rebellion against the way you're being treated by these people? You shut their mouths. And that is indeed rebelling against their terrible attitude, their lies, their slander, and their false witness. Now, there must have been some murmuring some confusion as well in the churches of Asia Minor regarding freedom. Perhaps with this idea that, well, if Christians have freedom and St. Peter and St. Paul and all these other apostles are preaching about Christian freedom, then I should just be free. I shouldn't be a slave. I shouldn't have to answer to some king or governor or emperor or anything. Why not be anarchists? Well, civically speaking, there are two freedoms. There is freedom to do what you want, or freedom to, right? Frontier freedom. And then freedom from bad circumstances. Freedom from. Christian freedom has elements of both kinds, being especially rooted in a new ability to make real choices before God and to truly please him. But that is not a license for sin. St. Peter calls it a cover-up for evil. We are certainly to live freely and enjoy the privileges God has afforded us, but God did not free us in order that we may sin. Note here that the word evil is kakios. That broadly means malice, ill intent, wickedness. Someone rebelling against the state with I'm a free Christian man as their justification is ultimately a malicious actor. St. Peter calls that man wicked. It's not to say that Christians cannot discuss politics or disagree about them, but when it comes to things like rebellion, especially predicated on Christian freedom, that can only be used to justify wickedness and often inspire more of it. 
we should be on our guard against abusing our freedom in such a manner. For example, let's just do a little thought exercise. Let's say the federal government banned the oral consumption of corn products. No more corn. We need to invest all of that in ethanol because oil reserves are drying up, so all the corn forever is going to be used to make our cars work. I know it's a ridiculous proposition, but go with me here. Maurice, your local churchman, same congregation, he doesn't like this. He loves corn on the cob. It's his favorite thing. He comes from Quebec where they just have corn-eating competitions and just entire days of doing nothing but eating corn. And so he gets angry. And so he decides to keep eating corn. He gets caught. He gets fined. He gets mad. He wants to stage a protest against the government so that he can keep eating corn, and he invites everybody in the church to join him in the protest, and not everybody in the church agrees. Now, he's defiantly eating corn in front of City Hall, and he's telling everybody that if you don't join him, you don't believe in Christian freedom. Join with me in my little rebellion here. And now the church is beset with all sorts of arguing. All because one man wanted to keep eating food. It's a silly example, but it can demonstrate at the very least that this inspires malice. And it inspires a man to do malicious things and even violent things. If Maurice shot his local post worker because he wants to keep eating corn, then his freedom was most certainly used for wickedness. But I digress. Moving on to verses 18 to 25. St. Peter wants to highlight the persistence of earthly distinction past our conversion. In verse 18, he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now that word servant here is not just slaves. He doesn't use the Greek word doulos, which means literal bondservant, slave, things like that. Instead, he uses a term that can mean a household servant, an employee. And it's a broad enough term that it can be employed to mean slave, employee, or any other number of jobs out there where one person is under another's authority. And all of them should be submitting to their masters regardless of whether they are good or bad people, preferring to be mindful of God instead of disgruntled. Now, a shift might be too long. Maybe you get passed up for promotion. Uh, maybe in the context of slaves, well, beatings might be doled out. Whether mild or extreme, St. Peter wants us to respond to such injustices by enduring them and repaying our bad masters with the quiet dignity of respect. Now, of course, you and I, our first instinct is to balk at this. Surely Christians shouldn't be doormats. Why do you want me to be a limp noodle that just bends in whatever direction my employer wants? Don't you know how wicked such men are? Sure. And we should not be silent in every single case of injustice. St. Peter tells us to be mindful of God, but this is the same God who sent prophets to cry out against all the sins of men, including oppression. But when a decision is made by a leader, an employer, a master of any stripe, 
We are not to seek retribution. We are to submit to these men's authority over us because Christ is our example for this. Yes, he flipped over the money changers' tables. Yes, he screamed at Pharisees and called them names. But at the same time, in the face of crucifixion, what did he do? He accepted the decision that was made because it would be for the good of all people. And St. Peter points to the fact that Christ entrusted himself to our Heavenly Father who judges justly. In this life, we may very well find ourselves distressed by all manner of unfair treatment and prejudice, but God sees that. He's going to make it right. We should and do trust in him to make it right. For some of us, and I would wager even most of us, this occurs in our own lives, if we're willing to notice it, if we're willing to be patient to see it, to patiently wait and pray for it. For others, justice is accomplished in eternity, after the final judgment. We're going to see a lot of reversals of social status between high estate and low estate in the world to come. But we must trust that God will do so more than we trust ourselves with any sort of supposed ability to make it right. Now, more important, though, is the matter of soteriology, the final two verses. Christ died for our sins, knowing that we are incapable of repaying the debt owed to God for our transgressions. He rescued us for the sake of life. What kind of life? Well, the kind of life that lives to righteousness, not sin. Now here, maybe your Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox friends will bring up that that means, ah, yes, he died so that you could become righteous. Start doing your penance. <laughs> Start doing your hesychasm or your fasting. But he doesn't mean that. The Apostle doesn't mean that we are to live to righteousness in terms of earning or laboring to be righteous any more than dying to sin would mean laboring to cease our transgressions. How many times do you die? Once. Furthermore, the language of dying and rising refers to the book of Romans, particularly the sixth chapter where St. Paul clearly states that we do not keep sinning because we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. Yes, I will assert that either St. Peter read Romans, or he inspired St. Paul writing Romans. Simple as. So in other words, St. Peter instructs us to live like we are saved because we are saved, not to live like we are damned. The non-believer, again, the man who remains in his humiliation, that man remains alive to sin, dead to righteousness. We should expect him to quarrel with his masters, rebel against authorities, and do everything out of selfishness. The non-believer does not seek to reveal the witness of Christ and cast aside slander through good actions. Since he's unsaved, he reveals the witness to himself and engages in slander alongside the rest of the world. But the believer, having been brought to life, healed, and returned to our Lord's flock where we properly belong, is expected to conduct himself in this exile with a greater sensitivity to the will of our Lord. Next week, he will get into some more of that. 
But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.